Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, a space for ongoing dialogue among Asian American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists. So I want to just, first of all, um, share a little bit about, again, myself. I grew up as a pastor's kid. Uh, my parents going into seminary, I'm sorry, going to ministry that they, they thought they were going to preach the gospel and uh, lead people to God. And they did a lot of that, but they also ended up really becoming unpaid social workers, like so many other faith leaders, but particularly in the Asian immigrant community, because of the high language barrier, uh, really the church has played a significant role, particularly in the Korean community, even though in South Korea, only 20% um, or 30%, 20 to 30% are Christians in the US is about 75%. So the church has really played a central role in helping people with jobs, housing, and so much more. And for what my parents did have, they did good, but I saw their struggle in my heart. I always carried this desire, could there be a better way? I grew up and got to know Reverend Mark Whitlock and Pastor C. Murray at First AME, and as a church, uh, partner with the broader community. I saw that they could leverage resources, so their impact was so much greater, uh, but also through the power of partnerships, whether it was government entities, corporate America, and so many others, I saw a mutuality that was created. And as a Korean American coming out of the LA riots, I saw our community kicked down and crying alone, and no one there to cry with us. So seeing this model of mutuality where the partners had a self-interest uh, in seeing the church's success and lauding the work of the church in rooms and places where usually God, church, or communities of color are rarely mentioned, uh, but they were doing that was an eye-opening experience. And because of that lauding, the church's influence, welcome, uh, grew, and now they're received as a contributing member of society. And uh, when important decisions were being made, they were always invited into the decision-making room. So I saw this amazing model where God gets honored, uh, you get paid, and uh, you get resources to really make an impact in the world and your welcome and influence grows. And so I took this model and brought it to the Korean community uh, with a lot of miracles. And we've been doing this for 20 years and just like the First Amy Church found themselves in rooms and places where normally God's not uh, mentioned. Um, likewise, we've had over 800 partners uh, from White House to Fortune 500, and we've been able to do work locally and nationally, being invited into some of those rooms, including uh, the Oval Office here. And as a Korean American growing up and thinking that uh, Asian men <laughs> were not sexy, uh, to go from that to where now BTS is like a world phenomena and like they're like the Beatles, I think, of Asia or maybe now the world um, is uh, gives me hope that change could happen. But perhaps at the same time, there's things that just still remain the same um, and the growing anti-Asian violence, the continued uh, anti-Asian violence tells me otherwise, and I am in so many rooms um, where Asian community suffering and pain continues to be left out and erased. And so uh, part of my journey also is the fact that, again, many leaders from uh, the Black community have been my 
significant mentors uh, and whom I respect and appreciate. But at the same time, uh, when it comes to particularly Asian store owner, Korean store owner and black customer, there is that tension that took me really on a journey seeking understanding of why the dissonance. And, you know, I came to realize that there were certain myths that were being told about the Asian community that were white adjacent, we're privileged, um, we don't, um, we have our act together, um, and maybe even racist, all those kind of uh, stories that have put us into the other. Um, and that has really hurt us uh, in terms of having solidarity with other communities of color, as well as needed resources in our community. So I want to first say that, you know, uh, Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And I believe that part of the truth telling, the honest conversations, I think will set us free uh, from, again, uh, losing our humanity um, and losing our um, love and solidarity and really coming to the fullness of what God had intended for each of us and to enjoy the blessing that God has given each of our communities and to share that gift. And I've shared this before again, Susan Boyle with Britain's Got Talent. You know, many of us, we don't look the part. Um, and so we get dissed when we show up in rooms. Uh, but as soon as, you know, she sang and opened her mouth and her gift was visible uh, and the world could see her, uh, it was a defining moment in which uh, the world could be blessed with her gift and her life was blessed. And that is my desire that by us all uh, being able to see the truth of one another, that we're all at the, uh, at the end of the day in the same boat um, and in the same game in which we are hurting each other. Um, and to be able to, again, see the truth of one another, the pain and also the beauty um, is my goal. And so here is one example of where for the Asian community, uh, when you lump 50 groups, 100 languages into one umbrella, uh, it really does disservice. So you'll see in the yellow what would be normally seen. So white home ownership is at 66%. And then uh, Asian home ownership, when you aggregate, is 62, 61%. And then Hispanic home ownership rate is 48%. And Black home ownership is 42 And that's what people would normally see if they bother to even include Asian data. Um, and so you would see that and go, wow, you know, those Asians, they're doing quite well. You know, they're white adjacent. They're privileged. They don't need any resources. Um, and I've seen, again, so many initiatives that are coming forth uh, targeting black and brown, but continually consistent leaving out the Asian community. But you'll see here that first black and Korean home ownership rate is the same, uh, but you'll see also seven groups, seven other Asian groups uh, that are below the black home ownership rate. And then there's 12 um, other Asian groups that are below the Hispanic home ownership rate. And so again, for many of us, we're in that same boat. Um, and need that same challenge and same situations. But I think that, oops, oh, and you'll look here, this is, that was a national data, but if you look at LA County, um, this is 2015, it's a little old, but again, I believe nothing significantly has changed. And so you'll see that even in assets for LA County, Mexican uh, is the lowest, but then right next to it is Korean and then US Black. So again, we're all in the same boat. Uh, but a lot of times, 
again, some of the pains in our community continue to be left out. And even in language barrier, uh, you'll see, again, this is city of Los Angeles, but again, so there's so few limited Asian data that is quite challenging. And so I'm picking and choosing to just highlight uh, what I've been able to find. But even in the city of LA, you'll see that, you know, overall Asian uh, language barrier or proficiency, English proficiency is low at even 37%. But if you look again, in disaggregate, you'll see that Korean um, has one of the highest language barriers at 60%, and so many of the other uh, Asian subgroups as well that also are left out whenever there's programs uh, just targeting in Asian language. I want to say that, you know, the model minority myth, a lot of it comes from the fact that if you aggregate the API data, you'll see that education attainment rate does shoot through the roof compared to any other group. Uh, except for, you know, when you do disaggregate Pacific Islanders, they have the highest drop, high school dropout rate of any group. But as, as you see, you know, with education, everyone says education is key. Um, and I believe it is true. Uh, but you would think that then it would translate into promotion rate in the workplace. But you'll see here in the blue in the private industry, uh, the private sector that Asians actually have the lowest at 55% of being promoted to management for Blacks at 65, Hispanic 74, and then Caucasian 111%. And the university in orange and the federal government in green, uh, with more regulations, you would think that there'd be less discrimination. And for the Black and Hispanic, it does pay off, but you'll see ironically for Asian community that it actually goes down even further at 41 and 30%. And so again, Asians face kind of a different set of discrimination. Um, and so if you define discrimination as rate of return on investment made, at least in education, uh, you could say that they uh, have one of the highest rates um, as well. And even in the criminal justice system, I know that there's this perception that it doesn't impact us, but you'll see here that you know, delinquent youth should be tried in juvenile courts. Uh, but here you'll see that Asian Latino youth have the highest rates of being tried in adult courts for violent crime. Um, but once tried, actually Black and Asian youth have the highest rates of being then convicted and imprisoned. Um, so again, this is just one example. I have so many more, um, you know, in larger studies, but for the interest of time, um, I am limiting it though. Uh, even around COVID-19, there's been repeated discussions about um, the impact, the disproportionate COVID-19 impact on black and brown bodies. Um, but at the same time, uh, continue to leave and erase the Asian communities uh, experience as well. And I hope that by uh, myself sharing some of these data points, I really hope the takeaway is more that we as Asian community are again um, in the same boat with Latino and Black community that we should you know, stand in solidarity. So during the pandemic, the New York um, was the, epi uh, what is it? Uh, the epicenter of the pandemic, pandemic uh, breakout. And you'll see that uh, soon after, especially with COVID-19 being connected with coronavirus, China virus, um, that many businesses were impacted. And because of the high language barrier, many Asians cannot find employment with mainstream companies. They end up uh, being employees of ethnic owned businesses 
who many times don't have much reserve either. Uh, a lot of times there's no health insurance or many other benefits that may come in being employed uh, in mainstream businesses. So the unemployment uh, filing, you'll see a very stark difference that Asians, their increase uh, went up over 10,000% um, as well. And even more recent data as it continues to be high. Even in death rates, you'll see uh, that this is in LA County as of May 2020, um, actually Asians had the highest death rate. But again, none of this ever gets covered in mainstream media. And this is a Pew study uh, where they ask people of all ethnicities, all age groups, political groups, you know, who has faced the most racism uh, during the COVID-19 outbreak. And you'll see that actually people said Asians had the highest, um, you know, rate of being that. But again, the black community is right there uh, with the Asian community um, as well. And, you know, with the pandemic and, and such, you know, the PPP loans uh, was something that was introduced to help, uh, especially small business owners. Um, but unfortunately for many of the Asian owned businesses, partly I'm sure because of language barrier, probably because of nonprofits uh, not being properly equipped to help in Asian languages or the small number of Asian owned nonprofits who are really under resourced, you'll see the, the disparity of how few um, Asian owned businesses uh, receive the PPP loans when Asian owned businesses have, have, have one of the highest rate, not in numbers, but rate of being self-employed as well. And this is just one example. I could give really so many of the uh, programs, even on home ownership or employment programs, in which again, uh, the Asian community continues to be excluded and left out when they're actually in the same area of need. Um, so now I'm gonna uh, switch into going into talking about, um, I believe the, the elephant in the room related to Asian store owners and the black customer. As mentioned before, um, you know, my key mentors um, have been from the black community and um, is one that I value uh, highly and have desired to continue in fellowship. Uh, and yet, you know, one space that has been a very painful um, space has been whenever we talked about the LA riots or just Asian store owners. Um, and so it took me on this journey and I realized at the end of the day, and I feel truly that it was God, um, God opening my eyes that there were certain myths that were being told about these store owners in that first that we get special government loans um, and that we steal these business opportunities uh, from the black community that we're exploiting and profiteering uh, we're targeting uh, the black community and I just want to say that first of all um, there are no special loans um, my father-in-law uh, came to America he was a successful business owner in South Korea because of some challenges with family um, he lost it and he came to America but because of language barrier, he ended up working as a janitor for American Airlines for 10 years. And it was only when he referred a client to um, an immigration attorney that he received seed money, a referral fee of, I believe it was 10 or 20,000. And that served as a, a money to uh, look into business ownership. Obviously 20,000 is nothing. Um, and so he was able to get the owner to do an owner carry loan 
and a Korean bank gave the loan. And I want to say that, you know, studies have shown there's more Asian-owned banks in the presence of, I'm sorry, Asian-owned businesses when there's Asian-owned banks. And partly it's because we face the same discrimination of not getting services. And so for the Korean community, they started Korean banks because they could not get loans uh, from mainstream uh, banks as well. So that's how my father-in-law went in and he went in highly leveraged, under-resourced. And um, my husband, uh, who used to be a business broker, I asked 30 years after the fact, like how much do typical you know, these stores, you know, generate. And he said a $150,000 liquor store or convenience store, they net about two to $3,000 after expense, but before payroll. And I was just aghast how little they made, but that is supposed to cover four people's salary because usually because of the long hours, uh, it takes two shifts and two people per shift. That's four people. Um, and so, but obviously my father-in-law didn't, with two to 3,000, you know, could not afford uh, to pay uh, and hire others. And so he ended up taking on those two shifts and that makes up the 16 hour days. And then also using family labor, including, you know, my husband who after eighth grade, he was one year behind, um, he got a car and basically the first three years of uh, owning that business, my father-in-law, uh, because of the long hours and the commute, it didn't make sense for him to come home. And so he ended up sleeping and not coming home, um, you know, Monday through Friday for the first three years uh, in the attached um, little, I guess, house that was there by the store. And then on um, Friday afternoon after school, uh, my husband would then go uh, relieve his dad and he would live uh, at the, the liquor store um, and not come home until Sunday evening. And so that is kind of a reality for many of these store owners. They work seven days, no holidays or vacation um, and 16 hour days as well. And there was news um, that was covered by LA Times um, that happened in January of a Korean couple that had owned one of these stores in Long Beach, California, and they were 65. Um, ready to sell, uh, they were in the process of selling their store. And basically their daughter mentioned that because the store consumed all their time, they never really had time uh, to do any kind of outing together. So they don't have any family photos uh, because of that experience. Unfortunately, um, in January, a customer walked in, stabbed the mom in the back. She ended up being paralyzed and also not being able to speak. And that kind of is still a reality for many of these owners, uh, even today. It is also, as mentioned, as, uh, the second highest um, dangerous job of being killed. Um, and so number one is taxi driver, but number two uh, is a convenience store employee. So it's, uh, again, uh, many of these store owners are working very long hours, uh, risking their life to provide a service that really um, is not being provided by other uh, stakeholders in the community. And just in general, um, again, each community, we all face different pains and different um, discrimination. For Asians, we have the highest rate of being victims um, 
by a violent crime um, by uh, offenders outside our community. And so, you know, that's a question, why are we uh, victims at the highest rate? You know, what makes it that way? Uh, that's a question to also ask as well. And related to Sunja Du, Latasha Harlins, I know that whenever the LA riots comes up and the Korean communities loss uh, of over 2,300 businesses, which represents 65% of all businesses destroyed. And, you know, these losses is their livelihood um, and it's connected to their life. Many families, even to this day, um, cannot sleep. They've been traumatized. Uh, it has, many of them have resulted in divorces, suicide, mental breakdown, depression, as well as foregone uh, educational opportunities and other opportunities um, as well. And so the trauma um, that is in our community, the mental health is real. And um, I really believe that Latasha Harlan's death is a tragedy that should never have happened. And, and I believe that Latasha was definitely a victim of this racist system and racism. And at the same time, um, I believe that Sunja Du is also another person um, who is also a victim in this racist system. Um, her reality and experience, I think is important for Sunja Du and Latasha Harlins. It is something that's already passed and gone, but we need to look and consider uh, for, for future uh, prevention of these type of interactions. Um, and I do have to say, um, again, as mentioned earlier, during the LA riots leading to that, um, Rodney King's video was played over day in, day out. The video of Latasha Harlan's killing was shown day in, day out. And again, superimposed right next to the Rodney King videos. Um, but what was not also told was the 25, again, Korean store owners killed by their customers from uh, 1990 to May of 1992. And I just wonder, you know, if the powers of B had chosen to show that video day in, day out, leading before the verdict, would things have looked differently? And that's where, you know, I talk about the, the squid game that, again, you know, the game master has set the table in which we are being pitted against one another. And could we wake into that reality and to switch up the rules? For Sun Jadu, um, you know, she had experienced over 40 shoplifting incidents a week. And again, if you're earning two to three thousand um, dollars, even one dollar is precious. It's a do or die. Uh, but you know, when these goods are twenty dollars, fifty dollars, hundred dollars, I mean, it truly, is a do or die. Um, and the police's failure to respond uh, when they call for help, you know, and they end up uh, following customers. Um, I believe it's not a strategic business decision for sure. Practice, uh, but I. I believe it's really, again, an act of desperation, um, taking desperate measures. I cannot imagine what store owner would really choose to uh, 
go and walk around <laughs> and police want to choose their time uh, to police their customers. Again, is it a smart decision? Definitely not. Um, but when you're again in that predicament um, and for Sunja Du, um, she had been burglarized over 30 times. Her store had been threatened of burning their stores over 20 times and her son's life was being also threatened by gang members uh, for being, uh, he was gonna be a witness uh, in the near future uh, for, uh, for these gang members for robbing their store. So that's kind of a live reality. Um, and yet it's also live reality uh, for, I know that many of uh, the leaders in the black community share of their lived experience of being followed around. And I cannot imagine for me as a customer um, if I was treated that way, the anger, the frustration um, that I would experience and feel as well. And so, you know, I'm looking at both situations and wondering, you know, if we were to just take a step back and instead of looking at them um, and, you know, defining people as racist or, you know, or thieves or whatever it may be, but to look at the human condition and that we are all, you know, looking at human response to human conditions that have been created. And if we were to look at this situation, I often say it's cruel to tell someone in a wheelchair to jump. It's futile and cruel. And I want to say that for many of these store owners, they are in these economic wheelchairs yelling at them to um, basically jump <laughs> in terms of hiring locally from the community, uh, doing things more for the community. It's not a realistic viability for them. Um, at the same time, um, if we were to say, why not put in a job training program that is a more viable answer in which there's an answer um, is a win for the store owner because they get extra help without having to pay. Um, and also they may even get an ambassador as the employee sees the challenges that the store owner faces. It's a win for the employee. They get a job, they get paid, they get job skills, maybe even business skills to start their own business. And then it's also a win uh, for the community. They get better customer service. Uh, there's someone unemployed, now is a tax paying productive member of society. And so I, I really wanna take a pause to look at this. You know, um, I know that when uh, we see delinquent youth, one solution is to say, go and send them to prison. But instead, a better answer, I think is to say, why is this kid acting this way? And what do they need? You know, telling a kid to stop steal, uh, to stop stealing when he's hungry and there's no food at home could only be sustainable for a little bit. Telling a kid with a old tennis shoes that has holes to stop stealing when their uh, peers are making fun of them um, and bullying them. Again, you know, it's probably them telling them to stop stealing. It's kind of, it's cruel. Um, and, and a better answer again is to say, why are they behaving this way and providing resources uh, to equip them? 
And so I think the same approach of looking at um, these store owners and say, why are they behaving this way? Why are they following people? Why are they policing? Um, and to say, what do they need? And I hope that that is, again, approach that I think we could use not just in the context of store owner and a Black customer, but also, again, the myths that we tell of one another uh, of all different communities and the different tensions that may arise. Um, at the same time, this is 30 years later. Um, I've mentioned in many interviews that before the LA riots, I was not familiar with the whole Black and Asian tension or Black Korean you know, tension. Um, but you know, 30 years after the fact, I was on a panel and um, Professor Leon Harris from Biola was on the same panel and he was sharing about the great experience that he had, relationship he had with his Korean uh, dry cleaner and with his Korean mechanic. And a light went on. You know what, in those contexts, there really is an opportunity to steal anything. And it's where people are able to, again, see each other, right? Um, and be not traumatized by each other's behavior. Uh, but in the context of liquor, convenience store, uh, beauty supply, where there's high crime and high poverty and high tensions, um, that is where I believe people are responding in a human response uh, to human conditions that have been created by our society. And, and I, I would love to see each of us being able to approach um, our societal challenges and even inter-ethnic and you know, race relations more in that vein um, as well. And so I want to say, you know, this is a quote that I saw um, from a social media posting, but I felt that it reflected uh, what I think is true for all our communities. And in my small workshop group, I think, or earlier, it talked about, you know, how even people in our own communities uh, choose to attack us when we choose to stand in solidarity uh, for other communities. And so here it says, it seems that a lot of time people are scared to challenge racist comments made by people of another race for fear of being branded a racist themselves. Racism should not be tolerated regardless of the race of the person committing it. And so I think again, for all of us, we should be courageous, right, to speak up. And so I want to uh, say, as mentioned earlier, um, that um, another elephant in the room, whenever the LA riots mentioned, is about Latasha Harlins. And you know, um, as an organization, we've done a lot of work around you know uh, solidarity, whether it's for the 20th anniversary or the 25th. But when a black colleague mentioned of reaching out to Latasha Harlins' family, um, I remember just going, no way. I didn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. But as the 30th anniversary approached and uh, different, um, again, as I was having conversations with black leaders, how should we do this better? Um, that one of the leaders mentioned that really Latasha Harlins was key. And, you know, honestly, I have to say I was scared. Um, I was scared because how do I touch this space well so that it doesn't cause more harm and more pain? And how do I do it in such a way to express um, empathy 
uh, for Latasha Harlan's family's loss, and at the same time, not necessarily sacrifice also the pain uh, that the Korean community has also experienced uh, during and pre-LA uh, riots period as well. And so that was a homework for which I didn't have an answer, but I felt really compelled that it was an assignment from God. And I just, I really, really, with encouragement of, again, friends from Black and other communities and my board, um, I decided to step forward in love and not in fear. Um, and I reached out and really, I thank God uh, that we had an amazing conversation with Shanice Harlan's, Latasha Harlan's family. Uh, we, it led to a few couple of other events and her also attending our closing ceremony. But you'll see here a moment that was actually created by black leaders actually, uh, where, you know, said, hey, Pin, we want you to stand. And then Shanice, Laura King, Laura Ni King's daughter, Najia Lee, another black activist, you know, let's do a group hug. And here is Shanice giving me that hug um, as well. And in the aftermath, the next day after our April 29th journey together, uh, she sent this heartfelt note. Um, and I just want to read the last sentence. Yesterday was a breakthrough. Thank you for the love and massive respect. And subsequently, we are connecting. Uh, she has a, a business, a floral business that she wants to take to the next level. We were able to connect to re additional resources. She signed up to also for our home buyer education classes. And so I am so grateful that God had this amazing plan uh, for me on this journey uh, for which I was fearful, but I was obedient and God has led to this beautiful uh, healing. Um, another piece is, uh, piece is that Najia Lee, again, he was the one that really uh, encouraged me and connected me uh, to Shanice Harlins um, at a public uh, press conference at City Hall with the mayor, a number of city council members and a diverse coalition of multi-ethnic leaders. Naji Ali um, basically said, 30 years later, I'm here to say I'm sorry. Um, as the Black community, we had the right to be angry about Latasha Harlins, uh, but we didn't have the right to release that anger on fellow Angelinos. And after the fact, I was concerned how the Black community may respond to Najee, but actually the Wave newspaper, which is one of the leading Black publications in LA, um, titled it on the front page, In Pursuit of Healing. And I was just so grateful that um, they uh, captured it in this way. And since then, again, so many of the other Black leaders have come along to stand in solidarity. And, you know, as mentioned, Reverend Mark Willock is my mentor. Um, it was, again, uh, he toasted at my wedding, but as mentioned, this was one space where um, I didn't feel safe. Um, and during the Atlanta massacre, some key Black leaders, clergy leaders reached out to me, including uh, Reverend Mark Whitlock. And that led to an invitation where we brought some key Black clergy, only four of them and four Asian clergy leaders. And through that, it led to Mark, Reverend Mark Whitlock, volunteering to write an op-ed for which he did the bulk of the lifting. And um, he got this article uh, on the front page of the AME Christian Recorder that goes to every AME pastor, not just in the US, but in the world. 
Um, and when he titled it and when he shared the title with me, Asian Lives Matter, I was kind of, I mean, initially I felt, I broke down in tears in the sense that I felt seen and heard. And yet at the same time, I realized I wasn't sure if he knew what he was doing this, <laughs> what he was doing to himself. And so as a friend, I said, are you sure you want to do this? And he said, absolutely. And the fact that he got this, he didn't say this just in the heart of, you know, Asian community, um, in the shadow of some private room, but he put it out there and including the LA Sentinel, I'm forever grateful. And basically there was kind of an aha moment where he said that he didn't want to be um, guilty of doing things that what of what white community has done to black community, um, to Asian community. He also said that he had fought for social justice all his life, but he realized that he had been fighting for social justice only for people that looked like him. And he made this 180 degree turnaround and he has been such an avid champion and I'm so forever grateful. Um, and so he's been on numerous talk shows, including the, the mayor's uh, uh, AAPI LA podcast about the riots, including with Najia Lee. Um, the mayor's representative, Leila Lee, mentioned that when she was hearing the, the podcast, she ended up bawling and crying because for the first time she felt heard and recognized. And I believe that that is kind of the reality for many of uh, the Asian American community. And, and so I also wanna share the story of Dr. Barbara Williams Skinner. Um, so I was in a room with uh, Reverend Jim Wallace in his faith table. There's about 40 plus uh, national faith leaders, heads of denominations, national organizations, but largely, you know, old white men. And um, I was invited to present about some of the data points that I shared. And Dr. Barbara Williams Skinner mentioned initially she was balking, um, you know, and she she said she was having a pissy fit, quote unquote, uh, because she felt that the, uh, the white community had not done enough for the black community. And here I was taking that attention away. Um, and she said, until her better self showed up. And when she started to hear and see that we were again, the same victims um, as the black community, she realized that justice uh, could not happen for black community without also justice happening for the Asian community. And she has been great in inviting me uh, to join because in the past she you know ventured from black community only to you know the hispanic community to the jewish community but had never thought to include the asian community but here you'll see that voter justice is another area again that we also experience um exclusion and injustice and so uh we are part of this effort some other efforts um you know when justice nominee katanji brown jackson was up for um, for being you know affirmed um, that we were able to write an op-ed together that was covered by Religion News in support of her candidacy and we're very excited again of her affirmation uh, and her historic role and so you know um, before I show a couple of videos I want to conclude here that you know in the Squid Game for those who saw it the game master set this game table in which the players were pitted against one another and none of them were gonna come out a winner until they did a lot of hurling 
and killing. And it ended up that only two were left. And I pray that like most of us, you know, we will not, <laughs> we will awaken to the truth as some of, as the end players did in the the ending of the Squid Games uh, before, you know, only two of us are left in the world. But, you know, for the, the final contestant, the remaining two, basically he realized that the prize money was not worth him losing his own humanity and losing his own lifelong friend. And I really, and, and basically with that, he changed up the rules with his friend and they both ended up becoming winners. And that's what I pray that each of us, we also awaken to the truth that we don't have to be stuck by the rules of the games that have been set to pit us against one another, right? We could change up the rules. We could expand that pie, right? In such a way that we could all become winners. And I know that there has been repeated uh, expectations of the Asian community showing up, but I have to say, Asians, Asian church leaders and church leaders, a lot of times we've just not been equipped to show up and to partner with the broader community. So I want to share a resource and encourage and invite you. The C2 Leadership Institute is something that we lead that's very practical and tangible and multi-ethnic in which we could show up for each other. So can we play uh, the C2 Leadership Institute? C2 Leadership Institute is about cultivating leaders at the intersection of church and community. Many faith leaders as first responders are doing great work, but do not have the tools, resources, or mentors to tap into the power of partnerships and sustain their efforts. The C2 Leadership Institute provides such resources. perceptions that the broader community was not interested in the church does, but they are. When I reached outside the church wall to serve the community, it sparked hope. My experience with the C2 leadership has expanded my breadth of understanding around the community engagement, working with funders, the importance of the ask, creating a pitch. Um, I've learned so much creating a a community uh, development corporation, learning how to speak to funders, um, how to get grants. It has been equally inspirational and informational, expanding my imagination and giving time to reimagine, re refocus, and re-strategize to be uh, an increasingly competent uh, religious leader in our community. How do churches leaders better connect with the community that they serve? Uh, I understood the basics. Um, but I've never put in this kind of work. Um, I had never created the building blocks that enhance my ability to lead a church and connect that church with the community.
uh, pastors, ministers here today. You know, you all found your calling, serving people. I have found my calling, serving people. We all serve the same constituents. So I thank all of you for participating in this program. Thank you for getting more involved. We need to hear your voices. Again, the stories you've done so far, you're on, you're there, right? And you're on the road and you're doing so many great things. We at CIT, we need your help too. Uh, and CIT is proud uh, to support FACE, um, you know, and the C2 leadership program. And we look to continue to do that. And just a quick word of how this came about. Hampton and I were connecting on some other matters and this program came up. And it was a perfect match because we were looking for in the conference to develop some mission field engagement community development programs training programs from that standpoint we are so excited and we're looking for this as a model for the future for us this won't be the last cohort okay <laughs> we do have a, a black asian solidarity psa i'm not going to show it i'll put it in the link uh, but we had uh, Bishop Kenneth Almer, Dr. Barbara William Skinner, uh, Bishop Jenkins. We had uh, Reverend Walter Kim, Dr. Walter Kim, um, uh, Nikki uh, Toyoma Sosedo um, as well. Um, and, and so this is a beautiful, again, example of solidarity. And I hope that we could have more examples. I really want to invite each of you. The C2 Leadership Institute is my, the lessons I took away, especially from the black community. And now I'm sharing it with the, uh, all the others. And so I truly believe this model works when we shine our light, when we partner, it creates mutuality um, in such a way that the church, God is honored uh, and we are welcome um, and we can see each other as well. We here at the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary invite you to join in the ongoing dialogue on Asian American faith, identity, social engagement, and ministry through our newsletter, blog, and upcoming conferences at ltiaa.com.